Thanks for checking out sermons from Pleasant Valley Community Church. We hope these messages encourage, convict, and inspire you to love and follow Jesus more faithfully as we seek to saturate our city with the hope of the gospel. Our online resources are meant to serve you, but they aren't a replacement for the face-to-face relationships that we were built for. So we really hope that if you're in Owensboro, you'll join us in person on a Sunday morning. And if you live elsewhere, you'll find a local church in your community where you can put down roots and find family. For more resources and to give financially to support the missions and ministries of Pleasant Valley, find us on social media or visit our website at www.pleasantvalley.cc. Hey, y'all. Good morning. Welcome. Thank you for being here, especially if you're a guest. The Bible says in James chapter 5, it says, Is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone among you sick? Then let he or she call for the elders of the church to pray for you that you should receive healing. And so next week, we're going to do that actually. Uh, We're starting a new sermon series walking through parts of Luke's gospel called Encounters with Jesus. And the first encounter with Jesus we're going to see next week is Luke 8, where Jesus heals a little girl and he heals an older woman that had a chronic illness of 12 years. We're going to see the power of Jesus to heal the sick. But they want to ask Jesus to do that here among us next Sunday. We have a team of men and women uh, that have felt a call of the Lord to serve as a ministry team here at Pleasant Valley. They've been through training and starting next Sunday and then every Sunday thereafter, they're going to be available here at the front and throughout the room to pray over anyone among us that would like to receive prayer for anything. But in particular next week, um, we're going to say, God, we believe you can heal the sick. It's not always God's will to do that. Sometimes God has it as part of our experience to suffer and to have illness that we don't recover from in this life. We understand that. But we also know that sometimes in his kindness, God choose to do miracles still and God get healed the sick. And so our discipleship group is going through the book of Acts. And every day I'm just reminded Jesus heals people. And in the Bible, the name of Jesus is not I was, His name is I am, and the same Jesus of the New Testament is the same Jesus of today. And so next Sunday, I just want to ask you this week to pray about if the Lord would have you come forward, that we could pray over you and ask the Lord to bring you healing, whether that's from something physical, it could be anything from migraines to cancer, or it could be something mentally, emotionally, depression, anxiety, whatever it may be. Next week, we're going to go out on faith and ask for that prayer of faith James 5 talks about and just open up after the message, the front for for you and anyone that you would like to bring with you. If you have a friend or a neighbor that's sick and would like prayer for healing, I can't promise you anybody will be healed. Not some kind of prosperity preacher, not a faith healer. Like we, we don't, claim any of that. But what we can say is God can do it, and God often does. And we're going to, and sometimes Jesus says, you have not because you ask not. We don't ask God to do powerful things nearly enough because our faith is so weak. So next Sunday, be praying with us for that service and ask if the Lord would have you come forward or bring somebody with you, okay? That's next Sunday. But before I jump into today's message, I just want us to take a few moments and pray for next Sunday. And there's a few things on the screen here. 
just like to ask you where you are. You can pray individually. If you want to hook up with a couple of people around you and pray, however you want to do that, let's all pray the same thing, asking God to move powerfully next Sunday. So let's bow our heads and let's just take a few moments and corporately go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and uh, Lord, we are a weak people. We are sick. We are suffering. We are frail. Lord, our bodies are failing. Our minds and our psyches fail us. Lord, we are burdened by many things in this world, and we just acknowledge our weakness before you. But Father, we also acknowledge in faith that you are the one who cares for us. You have compassion for us in our sickness and our suffering. And Lord, we trust your sovereignty. Lord, that sometimes you allow us to suffer even into death. And Lord, you give us that ultimate healing in heaven. And Lord, we submit that when that's your will, Lord, we will rejoice in that suffering as hard as that is. But Lord, we also know that sometimes in this life, you choose to powerfully make your name known and, and heal the sick and raise the dead, as we'll see next week in Luke 8. So Lord, we, our faith is weak, and we acknowledge that, but Lord, would you give us faith? And Lord, if you would see fit in your kindness, we, we know that you can, but God, would you uniquely show up next Sunday in a way that we see in Acts and in the Gospels, would you heal someone next week? Lord, would you heal many people next week? Would you set us free from sin? From sickness, from whatever it is, Lord Jesus, we claim, as the prophet Isaiah said, Jesus, by your stripes we are healed. And Matthew in the Gospel said that means physical and spiritual healing. So, Lord, next week, show off the power of Christ and move among us and grant faith and do signs and wonders for the good name of Jesus, that Christ will be honored and that the community would say, God is at work. And God is a God who still does miracles. Therefore, the gospel must be true. Christ must be different from all the other gods. So God, do that we plead among us and may this week, if we feel led to fast, to pray, to expectantly encounter you next week through your word and through the power of the spirit, Lord, I pray a blessing over our ministry team that'll be laying hands on people and praying for people next week. Lord, none of us, none of the pastors in and of ourselves have unique power. All power comes from you. Lord, we're weak, we're sinners, we have dirty hands. But God, work through weak people and do a great work next Sunday and we can't wait to see what you would do. But Lord, not just then, today would you move. Lord, today would you come in great power and use me, a weak vessel, to preach rightly your word from Haggai chapter two. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, how many of you men in particular thought you were going to be the great, fun dad that comes home with a big surprise for the family and it comes back to bite you in the fanny? That's happened to me many times. Years ago, I got the bright idea to surprise Annie and the kids with 
of Great White Pyrenees. And so that actually wasn't it. It would have grown up to be that way. It never made it to adulthood because Annie would give it away, which is part of the story. It actually started off like this. So this is little Maybelle, and isn't she beautiful and amazing? Brought her home, surprised Annie and the kids. We named her Maybelle in honor of Mother Maybelle, my great aunt, Mother Maybelle Carter, the mother of country music. Bust the love for the country music moment of the week. And uh, the kids fell in love with little Maybelle, as would anyone with a heart. <laughs> There's another member of our family who is not quite so impressed with little Maybelle. For a couple of reasons in particular. Number one, little Maybelle had a very hyper, overly active bladder and very little self-control. Number two, though, uh, Annie Googled Great White Pyrenees only to learn they can grow to be over 100 pounds. Thus, the original picture of what she would have looked like in theory if we wouldn't have given her away, thus breaking the hearts of me and all of our kids so that we all need therapy now. But that's a whole other story. So things are going okay with Maybelle, but she's doing what puppies normally do, right? She's saturating the home and her bodily fluids. She's, I mean, this is what puppies do. It kind of comes with the territory, no pun intended. And, uh, you know, she's biting at the kid's toes and there's blood and stuff like that on the carpet, which can pretty easily be taken care of. She's ripping up, you know, pillows and all that. But so she's living on borrowed time. The kids and I are fasting and praying that, that Jesus would save Maybelle so that her heart would be changed. And Annie would let us keep her. But, but this is when it all fell apart. So a week or two in, and this massive rainstorm comes. And we lived at that time in Forest Hills, and we were the very bottom of the neighborhood where all the rain from the neighborhood landed, like, in our backyard, <laughs> literally. And you could, like, swim in our backyard. And so there's this big rainstorm, and we got a creek that run, ran Past dance right by our house, and in a heavy downpour, the creek would fill up really, really fast, okay? So it's massive rainstorm. The whole backyard is a big mud pit. The kids were taking Maybelle out, in theory, to do her business on a leash. She breaks loose from the leash, goes crazy in the backyard, jumps in the creek. I mean, as you would imagine, she's covered in mud. We're out there chasing her, yelling, and the neighbors are watching. It's crazy. We finally get Maybelle inside, and we're going to try to carry her to the bathtub to clean her before she ruins the house. Well, she's squirmy, she breaks loose, and she takes off running through the house like a bull in a china shop. She's jumping across couches, jumping across bedspreads. I mean, very quickly, the whole house is just inundated in, in mud and, and all of it. So we, we take this next picture. You're going to see it right here. This was after we bathed her, and this is still the remnants of the mud, and I've always saved that picture. And I, you just look at the smirk on Annie's face. Just right before she gave her away the very next day, and Maybelle lost her last name, and that was her story. Bless her little heart. Look at that. How could, how could, how could you not love her? Well, so here's the moral of the story, and there actually is one that connects to the Bible. One little puppy dog that was dirty and muddy, one little dog that weighed like 12 pounds, okay, contaminates our whole house so that the rugs, carpet, the bedspreads, the whole house is destroyed because of one little dog. So a little dirtiness can contaminate a big area. Well, if we can just understand that principle, then you're going to be able to understand God's word today in Haggai chapter 2. The people of God, if you remember, the past three weeks have been sinning against God. They disobeyed God by not rebuilding the temple. 
So they're in rebellion. So it starts with sin among the Jewish people, and it's going to spread and contaminate the whole community of faith, the whole Jewish nation. A little sin can contaminate the whole camp. A bad apple can spoil the whole bunch or barrel. That's the message from today. Let's pick it up in Haggai chapter number two, uh, verse number 10, where we left off last week. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, if you'll do the math, Haggai has given us very precise dates all throughout this message. This is exactly three months after they finally began to rebuild the temple. So that was good. Remember, God sent his discipline. Remember, he made the crops not grow, the rain not fall. They're under God's discipline for disobedience. So they learned their lesson, and they finally start rebuilding the temple. So that was good. But for some reason, near the end of the book today, God's going to go back in time and remind them again of how their sin hurt them and how they were under his discipline. So if it kind of seems like God's going back here, it's because he is. He wanted them to learn the lesson, okay? Verse number uh, 10. The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, verse 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. Now, in that time, the priest had a number of duties, one of which was to represent the people before God, offer forgiveness of sins before the Lord, but they were also experts in the law. So if there was a legal dispute, the people in the community would go to the priest to make the determination about the law. So, so God here is saying, hey, go ask your priest about these two scenarios. Now, here's the first one in verse number 12. If someone carries holy meat, okay, in, in those days you had certain foods that would be like set aside, consecrated to the Lord, considered holy, right? There were certain things you could eat, certain things you couldn't eat, okay? If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? In other words, can holiness be transferred from one object to another or from one person to another? The priest answered and said, no. Okay, so very basic principle here. Under the old covenant, holiness or righteousness, or cleanliness could not be transferred from one person or object to another. So that same principle is actually still true today. Now, how might this kind of obscure Old Testament teaching apply to us today? I think here's what it can mean for us. Salvation is not contagious. This is an important word for those of us all of us presumably living in the Bible Belt. We can't throw a rock without hitting a church or a Christian. We work with Christians. We go to church with Christians. We're Facebook friends with Christians. We work out with Christians. We go to Little League games. Christians are everywhere. That's great. But here's the danger of that. Some of us wrongly assumed and are assuming that just because we're surrounded by Christians, that that somehow means we're automatically Christians. But friends, Christianity in another person doesn't attribute to our account just because we're in proximity. Say it like this, kids, 
Just because mom and dad are a Christian doesn't mean you automatically become a Christian. Just because our spouse is saved doesn't mean we're saved. Just because we go to a church and we're surrounded by saved people does not mean that we're saved. And I fear that in this kind of community, many of us are banking on the faith of someone else to get us into heaven. Friends, but no one will get into heaven on the coattail of anybody besides the Lord Jesus Christ. Our mom's faith is not our faith. Our granddaddy's faith is not our faith. The pastor's faith is not our faith. We won't stand before God on judgment as a group. There won't be a group vote or a group consensus. Every individual, Hebrews 9, there will be an individual single file line, and every individual will stand before God, Hebrews 9, and give an account of ourselves before God. We must personally repent of our sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a group salvation. It's an individual, personal, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. Daddy can't save me. Mommy can't save me. And I've been thinking about this this week. What a tragedy would it be if everybody in our church here at Pleasant Valley went to heaven but us? Let's make it hit a little closer to home. What a tragedy would it be if everybody in our family went to heaven but us? Think back to Christmas this past year, man, and we're with family, and we're opening the presents and doing all the family stuff, and we just treasure those moments. But what if in heaven it's not that way because we're not there? Anytime somebody in our family back home dies, we have this tradition where we, we sing, uh, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? It's an O'Carter family tune, so we keep it in the family, and we hold hands, and we sing that. But I wonder if for some of us, I wonder if for my family, even though we sing it, doesn't mean it's true, right? My, my, my larger family, aunts and uncles and all that. I wonder if some of our families, the circle will be broken because we won't be there. I think the Lord this morning is just saying, you got to make Jesus personal Lord and Savior. You got to believe. You got to trust Christ. Not mama's faith, not daddy's faith, your faith in Jesus. Because salvation isn't contagious. We don't get saved just because we sleep in the house with somebody that's saved. So that's the first thing we see in verse 12. Holiness is not contagious. But then on the flip side of that, we see that sin and rebellion and, and spiritual dirtiness is contagious, okay? Verse 13, then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. And this is difficult for us to understand. We're like, touching dead people? Like, first of all, unless you work for a funeral home, who would even want to do that? And then secondly, like, what do you mean you become unclean and you can spread it? Well, this is Old Testament law. And you go back to Numbers chapter 19, let's look at it. Now, this is an example of an Old Testament law that no longer applies to us today. Sometimes 
Christians and skeptics get caught up in some of the Old Testament laws in the Bible, like, well, you can't eat a certain kind of fish, or you can't touch a dead person. We're like, that's bizarre. Like, who would believe in that? But what we don't understand is not all the laws from the Old Testament are intended for us today. God had a very unique, often bizarre set of rules for his Old Testament people to set them apart from all the other people that everybody would know God's people are different, and God would do that in extravagant ways. These were like ceremonial laws and ritualistic laws. Those don't apply to us today. Now, the moral law still applies. We still don't kill, right? We're still called to not cheat on our spouses. The moral laws transfer over, but some of those very specific ceremonial laws went away with the coming of Christ, okay? This is an example of that, the whole dead people and touching them and spreading it thing. Let's, let's look at that in Numbers chapter 19, verse 11, so we'll understand the context. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. Verse 13, whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died and does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel because the water for impurity was not thrown on him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanliness is still on him. <laughs> this week as I read this, I thought about that film, Bruce Willis, um, Sixth Sense. And that little boy in that classic line, he says, I see dead people. But then Numbers 19 is like, don't touch dead people. It would have been a very difficult time to be in the funeral business, you know? I mean, I've always heard it's a stiff business, but this takes us to a whole new level. Sorry, I know that was bad. I had, a, I had an old pastor that did internship with in the 90s, and he told me that joke one day. On the way to the cemetery, I'm like, dude, that is very insensitive and non-pastoral. That's what he did. So, but look, look what happens in verse 22. Look at this, and, and whatever the unclean person touches, that's if you touch the dead body, shall be unclean, and anyone who touches it shall be unclean until evening. So in this example, okay, you touch a dead person at the funeral home, okay? Then you go out to eat dinner at Beef O'Brady's after the funeral, and you walk by and shake your buddy's hand, talking about the Kentucky win over Auburn, all of a sudden, you've transferred the uncleanliness from the dead body to you and now to him. The, the sin, the dirtiness is spreading. That's how it would have been in the Old Covenant. Why, for example, people that had leprosy, you stayed away from them because they're spiritually unclean, and that'll transfer over to you. So that's what's going on here. Dirtiness spreads. Holiness does not spread by virtue of contact. Dirtiness does. Now, I know it's a bizarre thing for Haggai to talk about. But God has this to make a point about what's happening with the people here. And here's the point. Go back to verse 13 and 14 and look at what God's saying. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead person touches or dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Now here's the point, verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people. And with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. So God says, my people have become unclean because they've sinned against me. They've not rebuilt the temple. They've been uh, complacent and lukewarm in their faith. They have sinned. And what started as a sin of not rebuilding the temple has now spread among the community and through the whole nation of Israel, 
The unholiness has become contagious. And now God says, even when they go to church to worship, that's unclean too. When they put their tithe in the offering plate, that's unclean. Every work of their hands, what they offer their, when they do their worship songs, that's unclean. When they say their prayers, that's unclean. See, a little sin contaminated the whole camp. Unrighteousness is contagious. Now, what's that got to do with us? There's three principles that I think we can take away 22, 2300 years later. Here's the first. We must be wise with the company that we keep because we become like the people we spend the most amount of time with. There was a, a guy in high school, I'll never forget, an older gentleman, uh, and he said to me one time, he said, Jameis, you'll never soar with the eagles if you flock with the turkeys. Gobble, gobble. There's some turkeys there you can, you can look at. You'll never soar with the eagles if you flock with the turkeys. And here's why. Sin spreads. Ungodly lifestyles are contagious. We will end up becoming often like the people we surround ourselves with. Therefore, choose friends carefully. Choose boyfriends and girlfriends carefully. Choose spouses carefully. You'll become like that which you spend the most time with. And here's what we most often see. When we spend time with the wrong people, more often than not, their sin is going to drag us down more than our holiness is going to bring them up. Because holiness doesn't transfer. But sin does. Now, what we're not saying is never spend time with people that aren't Christians. Jesus spent all kinds of times with Christians or with non-Christians to the point where they accused him of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So the solution is not go find a group of Christians and, and give the finger to everybody else. That, that is fundamentalism. That is, that is uh, not biblical Christianity. That's unbiblical. Be salt and light, but be careful and wise. Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And how often have we seen it be the case that a person is walking with the Lord and then they start dating a person that's not. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get them in church and I'm going to win them to Jesus. And that's a good ambition and that's, that's noble. But often we see that go very poor. We don't end up leading them to Jesus, but they end up dragging us away from the Lord in our friend groups. Somebody's on fire for God. They're living for the Lord. And then on the weekends, they start hanging out with the wrong crowd. And we're going to be strong for a while. We're not going to do what they're doing at the party, high schoolers, college students in the fraternity. I'm going to be strong. I'm a Christian. But over time, we're not careful. The world calls it peer pressure. The Bible just says sin spreads. And many of us aren't as strong as we think we are. That's why the Bible says things like in 2 Corinthians 6, a strong word 
Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. At the minimum, he's talking about marriage here. Christian, do not marry a non-believer. But I think the principle can apply certainly to dating and, and who we're primarily living our life with because what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? And in verse 17, here's the, here's the result of that. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, therefore, go out from among their midst to be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. So for some of us this morning, here's the word from the Lord. Be careful and be wise who we're spending our time with, who we're dating, who we're marrying. Here's the second principle. We must purge sin from our lives and from the body of Christ because one bad apple can spoil the whole bunch. So several years ago, I read this study that the University of Washington did a study on the workplace and how one bad employee can spread the negativity to the whole workplace. How many of us have experienced a situation where one knucklehead at work, one cynical person, one critical, one drama queen, whatever, can make the whole place miserable? Well, this, this person did this study, and here, here's what happened, University of Washington. They found that um, one of the researchers had a spouse who was unhappy at work. And she said, it's so negative at work, and it's just an unpleasant place to be. Um, and then what she found was um, one of the coworkers who was very negative and was always making fun of other people, he got sick. And so he missed work for several weeks. And then she noticed how the whole atmosphere of the workplace changed. And I'm quoting here. The researcher said, when he was gone, my wife said that the atmosphere of the office changed dramatically. People started helping each other, playing classical music on their radios, going out together after work. But when the negative guy returned to the office, things returned to the unpleasant way they were. She hadn't noticed this employee as being a very important person in the office before he came down with this illness. But upon observing the social atmosphere when he was gone, she came to believe that he had a profound and negative impact. He truly was the bad apple that spoiled the barrel. And then that led them to do a nationwide study of 50 manufacturing uh, teams. And here's what they found in short. Negative behavior in the workplace outweighs positive behavior. Okay. A bad apple really can spoil the whole barrel in a way that one or two good workers cannot unspoil it. One bad employee can do more bad for your organization than 100 good employees can do for the organization. The research shows that. We've all experienced that in our personal lives, right? You ever been on an athletic team and one player with a bad attitude can sour the whole thing, right? Okay, now apply that to the spiritual realm, and that's what Haggai is doing here. He is saying, among the people of God, what started as the sin of not rebuilding the temple has now spread to the whole community of faith. And now everything they're doing is unclean. Everybody's now paying the price for what started as a sin of few. In verse 14, then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer their is unclean. Here's what that means for us. God calls the church the body of 
Christ. And we're called to be holy. He also calls the church in Ephesians 5 the bride of Christ. And we are to be beautiful and spotless as the bride of Christ reflecting the glory of the groom who is Jesus. So, so think back to the last wedding you went to, okay? Okay, think about who's the last person who got married and you went. Okay, now see those doors open in the back. See the preacher go like this and everybody stands. And then see the bride walking down the aisle. Her dad's going to give her away. Okay, see her. She's got the beautiful white dress. It's spotless. It's dazzling. Everybody's taking pictures. She's beautiful. That's the way that it's supposed to be, right? Well, that is what the church is supposed to look like, the glorious, radiant bride of Christ. But what the Bible says is just a few unrepentant sinners in a local body can tarnish the appearance of the entire bride. What if a bride walks down the aisle and she's got Chick-fil-A sauce all up on her dress because she got the munchies before she got married and got some nuggets? And I mean, she's, or what if she's got ketchup all up on her? It's going to stand out like, man, she should have went to the dry cleaners. She must have bought that thing from the Goodwill right before she walked in here. No bride is going to walk down the aisle covered in ketchup. The biblical principle is when there is sin in a church, when there is unrepentant sin in, among a body of Christ, it takes the witness of the whole bride. The whole thing becomes tarnished, and it spreads. Because what that means is when we become a Christian, our behavior, our actions don't just affect us. They affect the whole community of faith. If I go out and do something stupid, if I'm living in sin, that affects all of y'all now. My sin is not just my sin. It affects the whole church. Because the, the bar is raised when we come to Christ. We become a part of a community of people. And so we need to do introspection and self-examination. Is my life, is my sin being a poor witness on the larger body and witness of Christ? And the Bible takes this so seriously that in 1 Corinthians 5, look at what God says. There was a man in the church who was living in unrepentant sexual sin, and the church was acting like it was no big deal. And Paul says in verse 2, are you arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lot? Bad apple spoils the whole barrel. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. That is strong language. Friends, this is how serious God takes integrity and holiness in the local body of Christ. Sin matters. And, and for the past three weeks, Haggai's been drilling us on repentance, hasn't he? There must be a corporate cleansing for revival to happen, and I'm thankful we're talking about that from Asbury, but for revival to happen, it does not start in the crack house or in the strip club. It starts in the church house. It's the people of God repenting. Our sin in here 
is more negatively affecting the culture than even their sin out there in God's eyes. God expects lost people to sin. I mean, he doesn't like it, but it comes with the territory. We are to be different. We are to be peculiar. We are to be the light shining on a hill. Our repentance matters more than their repentance in that sense. So, friends, God's been drilling us to Haggai. People of God, repent, cleanse ourselves, recommit to Christ, purge the sin from among us. Because, listen, if we don't purge the sin from among us, God will. And that's called God's discipline, and that is painful and traumatic for everybody. Here, let's, throughout the Old Testament, Joshua 7, for example, when there is uncleanliness among the people of God, it will prevent God from doing a great work there. So we're praying for revival. We're praying for people to be healed next Sunday. We're praying for people to be saved but if there's unrepentant sin in the camp, often God won't move there powerfully. I don't want to be the reason the Holy Spirit of God won't pour out here. I don't want any of us to be the reason. So let's examine ourselves because our sin affects the whole. How many churches have you known of where just a little bit of gossip in a couple community groups or Sunday school classes where I grew up, a little bit of gossip can divide a whole church. How many churches have you known where some bitterness between just maybe a couple families that won't forgive and it can spread through the whole church? Friends, God's blessing does not rest in the place where his people Continue to live in sin. Don't let it be because of you. Don't let it be because of me. Let's hold one another accountable. Let's confess our sins to one another in community group, in discipleship group. Let's be a church that repents of our sin. God's called us to be holy. All right, now here's how we're going to end this sermon series. We're going to see how Haggai the prophet concludes his book by showing us the coming of Jesus Christ. So track with me. Give me, give me five minutes here, and I'm going to show us what I think is the most beautiful thing in the whole book. It's been a lot of negativity in Haggai, a lot of repent, you're sinners, you're under my day. It's been heavy, right? I'm, I'm exhausted from preaching Haggai. I'm happy to go to Luke next week, just to be honest with you. But like, this is what God's had for us. Repent, repent, you're holy, you're unholy. Okay, but, but he's gonna end Haggai by pointing us to the hope of Jesus. Now look at this. Skip down to verse number 17, okay? God says, I struck you in all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. God here is reminding them of his discipline for their sin. But this language in verse 17, toil, blight, mildew, hail, that is evidence of God's covenantal curse upon his people. That exact language is used in places like Amos 4, 1 Kings 8, Deuteronomy 28. So for their disobedience and sin against God and against God's covenant, God's laws, 
God brings them discipline through curses of various kinds like mildew, like the crops not growing. So in verse 17 and 18, track with me, God reminds them, you're under my discipline and you're under part of the curse. But then God abruptly ends this reminder of discipline with these nine words in the last part of verse 19. He says, but. So you've got, you're in sin, you're in trouble, my discipline, my curse, it's all negative. But here comes the good news. From this day on, I will bless you. That is grace. Y'all are all messing up really bad, but I'm going to bless you. How does that work? How do you go from being under a curse to under blessing? Did God just wake up in a better mood one day? How does God say cursed? No, but now blessed. Oh, friends, the reason God can move your life from being under his curse to under his blessing is because Jesus Christ would come. And what I want to show us in these next couple of minutes is Jesus bore the curse of God for us on the cross so that we might fall under God's blessing. So go down to Galatians chapter 3, verse number 10, New Testament. Look at this. This is beautiful. Paul picks up on the Old Testament language of God's curse. He says, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, and he quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, here's what happens in Deuteronomy 26 and 27. God stands up the people of Israel on two different mountains, and on one of them, he says, here's my laws, here's my covenant. If you keep all these laws, I'll bless you. Blessing, 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 blessing. But then on the other mountain, he says, but if you break these laws, here's all the curses. Here's all the curses. And then he says, if you don't abide by all the laws, you'll fall under my curse. This is a massive problem for us. Because, friends, who among us has perfectly, perfectly kept all the laws of God? You start with the Ten Commandments, and I strike out right out of the gate. Even if you want to skip down, thou shalt not murder. Most of us are like, all right, I'm not a saint, but I ain't killed nobody. Jesus comes along in Matthew 5 and says, here's the true meaning. Murder is not just what you do with a shotgun or a butcher knife. He says, if you're angry with your brother in your heart, that's murder. Just like that, my suspicion is every one of us in this room, under God's law, could be convicted in God's courtroom of murder. Okay, thou shalt not commit adultery. I ain't no saint, but I never cheat on my wife. But then Jesus comes along and says, if you look at a person with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Just like that, your preacher is a murderer and an adulterer. Don't put that, Andrew, on TikTok. 
out of context because that would be really everybody's looking for another church. We're not going to build a new building because the whole thing falls apart. But but that's actually true under God's law. We've broken his law in entirety, and therefore God's law demands in the Old Testament we be cursed. Okay, well, how does that play out? How does God curse somebody? Go back to verse number 13. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Wow. But God is so holy, and we are so sinful. If we don't perfectly keep all of his law, God says, my holiness demands you hang on a tree and be punished for your crime. This is what we all deserve. But thank God, there is a law keeper. There is one who perfectly kept the covenant and the law of God and his name is Jesus. There is only one person in the history of the universe who deserves the blessing of God. Because there is only one person in the history of the universe that has perfectly kept the law of God, and it's Jesus Christ. Friends, here is the point of the story. We all deserve to be cursed. Jesus deserves to be blessed, but Jesus was cursed so that we might be blessed. That's the gospel. Galatians 3.13, look at this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This is called penal substitutionary atonement. And it means God punished Christ instead of us. He became a curse for us. He was a substitute. He was the sacrificial lamb. God poured out his wrath on Christ and cursed Christ so he wouldn't have to curse us. And he did it on a tree. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. On a tree that we think of as the cross. Jesus, the only covenant keeper ever to live, the only man who actually deserves the blessing of God on the tree. God takes all of our sin, 1 Peter 2, and puts it on Jesus' head. And he became sin for us. And on the tree, Jesus hangs there covered in our sin. And God treats Christ as guilty. Though Jesus never broke the law, God treats Christ as though he broke the law. He bears the curse we deserve. And then he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm going to use some intense language. Parents, you can talk through this with your kids later if it sticks out to them, but it's important that we feel the gravity and the weight of the curse of God on Christ the Son. Because I fear that so often we belittle the true meaning of the cross of Christ. It is not merely a little crucifix we hang on our sign as a picture of how sweet the love of Jesus is. It is so much more Terrible than that. 
Jesus became a curse for us on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God slams the door of heaven in the face of Christ. Sky turns black. The ground shakes. The veil is torn. And in the words of the late R.C. Sproul, in that moment, God the Father turns his face on the Son and he says to Christ the Son, the Lord your God damns you. Christ dies forsaken and abandoned and cursed by God. How often do we so flippantly talk about the blessing of God? Oh, I'm blessed. Bless her little heart. Friends, every time we speak of the blessing of God, we should do so with reverence and worship because the only reason we can be so blessed by God is because Christ was so cursed by God. Friends, our only hope in life and death is the cross of Jesus Christ. If Christ was not cursed, we all go to hell. Let's bow our heads. And I don't know what the Holy Spirit has for each individual. But I think we just need to take a few moments and sit in silence and reflect upon the cross of Jesus Christ and Christ becoming a curse for us. So for a believer, that looks like gratitude and worship and forgive me, God, for my sin. God, I'm sorry for abusing your grace and trampling and but forgive me for hanging on to old sins when Christ, you are cursed for me. So it looks like repentance for believers and gratitude. And then if you're here and you're not a believer, it looks like, God, forgive me, a sinner. God, my sin nailed Christ to the cross. I believe in Christ. Forgive me of my sins. I'm sorry, God. I come to Christ now and I believe. So wherever you are, meditate on the cross of Christ and say, God, what would you have me to do in response? Thanks for checking out sermons from Pleasant Valley Community Church. For more resources and to give financially to support the missions and ministries of Pleasant Valley, find us on social media or visit our website at www.pleasantvalley.cc.